In therapy, radically genuine is reached when one is being truly authentic, communicating freely and openly as equals. The Radically Genuine podcast strives to do just that. We will question areas of mental health, culture, societal norms, and what is truly needed to improve the lives of others. Dr. Roger McFillin is a clinical psychologist and board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. He is the executive director of the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Our discussions in the studio have touched on the current state of mental health with lots of questions speculating on the how, why, and ultimately what needs to be done. On today's podcast, we welcome Dr. Rizwan Ahmad into the studio. Our conversation with Dr. Riz is fantastic. In fact, we lost track of time. So we have decided to separate our discussion into two episodes. This first is focused on his experience working with adolescents. And next week, we will release part two, where we shifted our discussion to the need for clinical training. Enjoy. Welcome to the Radically Genuine Podcast. I'm Dr. Roger McPhillan, broadcasting from the bunker on the front lines of the <laughs> mental health crisis. Day 876. Before I announce our special guest in the studio today, I am throwing out a statistic from the U.S. Surgeon General Report as of yesterday. I saw that. I read it this morning. Hot off the presses, I want to thank a Twitter follower of mine, Dee Doherty, who's a advocate for science and health and well-being on Twitter. Uh, she sent this to me, which I told her I was going to use today in our podcast. Talking about statistics, frightening statistics. 51% increase in ER visits for suicide attempts by adolescent girls in the United States in early 21 compared to the same period in 2019. 51% increase Comparatively speaking, that figure rose only 4% for boys. And, you know, as a podcast here, we've been talking about some statistics that are quite frightening and refer everyone back to our, our recording on what the hell is society doing to female girls um, because it's, a, it's disproportionately, the mental health crisis is disproportionately affecting adolescent girls. And we also see a disproportionate uh, rise in prescription drug rates for adolescent females in comparison to to boys. So the question of today's podcast, and it's an important one, is what happened? Where are we going? How do we correct this? Mm -hmm. And I want to welcome to a podcast Dr. Riz Ahmad, who's a clinical director, licensed psychologist here at Center for Integrated Behavioral Health, little background on Dr. Ahmad that he started as a postdoctoral resident here at Center for Integrative Behavioral Health and, and went through our training. And, you know, as we've mentioned here previously on our podcast that we are an evidence-based center, which means that we conduct outcome studies. And I remember supervising Dr. Ahmad throughout uh, that course of his residency year. And I remember in one particular conversation, you know, I kind of told you just trust the process because there's everything that you brought to the training, which is going to predict you being very successful in your work as a psychologist. Very hardworking, compassionate, caring, uh, a passion for improving the lives of others that you could tell was part of his life purpose. 
And so what that does is it, it, it drives further study, investigation, and self-evaluation. Mm-hmm. And in his first year, I think his outcomes were quite poor. You know, the, you, you look back at that and we kind of look at the large amount of early treatment dropouts and those it's clients. Not out of the ordinary though, right? Not out of the ordinary for yeah. that stage, right? Mm-hmm. And this is a doctoral level postdoctoral resident. Yep. So it gives us a lot of information about generally what is the standard of care, mm-hmm. right? The standard of care generally is, is quite poor. Most people who are going into the mental health system are not going to improve unless, you know, there's certain things that are, that are done, which are going to be part of our conversation today. Mm-hmm. But to make a long story short, his clinical outcomes more than doubled from the time that he's a resident into, uh, you know, his stage in his career right now, which is kind of moving out of that early stage as a, as a, as a clinical psychologist. He's got expertise in cognitive and dialectical behavior therapy. Uh, some specific areas of expertise in, include the application of dialectical behavior therapy to adolescents. He is a adolescent psychologist. He works primarily with teens and, and young adults in that very vulnerable period for mm-hmm. the most part of age you know, 14 through 24 and has a, a high success rate. Um, with clients who've been chronically suicidal, struggle with mood and anxiety. And so we're gonna have to pick his brain today on you know what are those effective components? Um, how do people actually get better? Because the prevailing narrative in popular culture is not what we're doing here. It's actually moving in a very you know, different direction. And so we're, you know, this is about getting you know, radically open and genuine about what actually works and how we can course correct in the mental health system. But more importantly, um, he's been provided um, an incredible opportunity, but you know, also some pressure here at our, at our practice. He is in charge of training our current residency class. We're gonna be a post, we're going to be a center that trains doctoral students. And as we're opening up our center to bring master's level clinicians, he has developed and worked in it with a uh, a training model mm-hmm. to be able to provide clinical competencies, to be able to treat these clients who really, really need the help. And so he also has the opportunity to talk a little bit about how he sees the future of training clinicians, you know, and how we course correct. So Dr. Mata, I want to welcome to you to the Radically Genuine podcast. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Good morning. Wow, that was five minutes in and we finally got him to speak. <laughs> <laughs> well, and one thing I haven't learned through all that training is how to accept a compliment well. So <laughs> still working on that one. But first of all, let me get your thoughts on that, um, that statistic. It's quite frightening. 51% increase in ER visits for suicide attempts in adolescent girls in a one-year period. Now, how do we make sense of that? It's, it's an appalling statistic. And I guess even more appalling that it's it's so normative. It's not even that surprising to hear it at this point with where we are in mental health. And when I think about making sense of it, I think about who's on the front lines of seeing these girls when they're coming in to the ER. What kind of treatment are they getting when they arrive at the emergency room? And with a lot of the teenage girls I've seen, uh, a lot of the care coming in is not really uh, fitting with what they're coming in for. So we, we see people who enter the mental health system, who stay in the mental health system for long periods of time. And that first emergency room visit or the second emergency room visit can become an entry point that it becomes hard to find your way out of. Yeah, let me have a question for you here. Um, 
obviously this is new, right? When you have that dramatic of an increase into hospitalizations, let's, we're going to have to analyze all the factors. You know, obviously nothing is ever simple. There's Mm -hmm. usually multiple variables that are interacting with each other, but what would you identify as some of the variables that are leading to this rate of entering into that system? You know, I think there's some things as a broader society and culture that this podcast that I've been listening to avidly has been talking about in, in previous episodes uh, as well. You know, the, the move towards sometimes fragilizing, uh, the move towards pathologizing some normal emotional experiences. Uh, I think that happens even more intensely for girls uh, than, than it does for boys to some extent. Uh, the amount of societal pressure uh, on teenage girls coming in, on body image, on eating, on all kinds of things that can lead to being very prone to being invalidated by others. And then we have to ask ourselves, how are we thinking about things as treating clinicians and as a field? Uh, because I think as a field, we've moved much more towards uh, diagnosing and medicalizing some of these things in ways that don't actually promote uh, resilience and people learning how to, how to overcome them. So when, when I think about training, this is part of what has me excited. I think, we're, I think part of the mental health crisis is that we're in a crisis in training. Uh, we're, we're in a crisis for what are we treating, what are we teaching clinicians for mm-hmm. what to do and how to think about these situations. And I don't want us to move towards a helpless model uh, as a way of thinking about what we do in these situations that we need to figure out anything possible to kind of uh, treat people with kid gloves uh, versus teaching them how to, how to overcome some of the things they're up against. Well, I mean, that's an interesting statement. We're going to have to get into that more. The, the fragilizing of, of clients and the medicalization of uh, emotional struggle in society. But what do the, these teens that are going into the emergency room, you, you commented a, a bit on um, kind of that poor care um, and the messages that are, that are received. What do families, what should they expect when they enter into that hospital-based system, generally speaking? So generally speaking, it will be about monitoring things much more closely and getting a lot of control over what's happening. Monitoring what type of things? So monitoring things like safety is usually the number one priority that comes in. So if someone comes into the emergency room, say they've had an instance of uh, self-harm mm-hmm. and you know parents understandably are worried, bring their kids to the emergency room. Stabilize the situation. Stabilize the situation, yeah. Mm-hmm. Put, out, put out the fire. Mm-hmm. And the advice you'll often be given in that kind of setting is to make yourself uh, kind of over, over-involved and over-monitoring things. So uh, don't let the, your teen be alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can't be alone in their room. Doors might have to be taken off, uh, might be the recommendation. Mm-hmm. Uh, take away all objects that could possibly be used in any way, all, you know, all sharps possible, which I don't even know how that's possible. I mean, you can go outside and grab a stick from a tree. But, you know, to some extent, take, take away everything possible that could be utilized and kind of put yourself in the position of becoming the warden of your, of your team. And the treatment inside the hospital is primarily what? Primarily from what I've heard from clients' stories uh, has been uh, containment. You know, it's, it's kind of a holding place to be for a period of time in which it's less likely that you'll do anything to harm yourself. Occasionally with some groups where people meet and, you know, tell stories about their experiences with each other. Um, occasionally very basic levels of psychoed, 
but I haven't had a single teen come to me and say that that hospital experience was a transformative treatment in, in their life. Mm-hmm. And what would you say the percentages are of uh, the teens that are placed on psychiatric medications upon admission to a hospital? <laughs> in, in my experience, that would be 100%. Yeah. Very rare to walk out of a hospital without at least one psychiatric medication. Um, I think overwhelming majority, it's polypharm drugging. You know, we're, we're, we're going to place teens on, on, on various drugs. I, know, I don't know, and I don't want to put you on the spot, I don't know if you've like looked into some of the safety and efficacy of these various psychiatric drugs uh, in the same way that maybe I have, but do you have any you know, thoughts or opinions on that? I know you've done much more of a deep dive into that, but I'll, I'll say for the clients that I've seen um, and looking at some of the studies about it, I haven't had anyone come to me who have said that that's been curative. You know, and I haven't heard any stories of anyone going into that and having that be the curative element. Yeah, and, and I think that aligns very much with uh, what we're what we're seeing in the literature. And I do have a genuine concern that the psychiatric drugs that are prescribed for mental health issues are actually, you know, harmful and worse than the actual mental health issue they're dealing with at the time. So it's almost like um, if you're going to fragilize a client and medicalize it and view it out of context, then the goal of the treatment is to, you know, diminish a symptom, a symptom without truly understanding the cause. And if a psychiatric hospital center is all about safety and monitoring right? It's again, it's, it's adding a label, a label that often will stick, right? Like as if it's valid, like a discrete medical illness. Like if, you know, you go in and and you identify that you have like tuberculosis or something like it's like the general public almost, you know, views it in the same way. The unfortunate consequence of this is that you're having teens who are suicidal and having mood lability being discharged from hospital centers with diagnoses like bipolar disorder, right? Um, you know, bi- bipolar disorder in children and adolescents uh, should be met with, you know, great skepticism and scrutiny because there's not really a strong scientific base to suggest that um, bipolar as a condition in children and adolescents presents itself in a similar way as it does in adults. And there's not a lot of good research or science to support. There's a trajectory like there's a, you know, an episode and it follows that episode and um, it presents itself as a chronic life, lifetime illness. Yet, many parents believe it does. Doctors are communicating it in that way more often than not. And we're in these situations where, again, a presenting problem outside of context is presented in a scientifically invalid way and treated with a harmful intervention. That's what I'm seeing in our center. Um, and then what are the consequences of this? What generally do you begin to see as they, as they come here? Yeah, I was just going to say the impact of that goes beyond just having a label of a diagnosis because, first of all, take it from the teen's perspective. You have, you have now been told there is something seriously wrong with your brain. Mm-hmm. There is something chemically and seriously wrong with your brain. How do you start to see your own experiences after that? Yeah, and, and do what do they think about their future? Right. You know, the, you're 15 years old, 14, 16 years old. You've got 70 years left in your life, and you've got 70 years with a label. 
Yeah. And, and, and how do you think about your emotions yeah. and your ability to, to control your actions? May I ask a question? Life? In both of your experiences, um, the accuracy of a presenting diagnosis when you start working with an adolescent, how often after spending time with them, talking to them, learning about what they've been going through, do you realize that none of that was accurate? I mean, I, I, of Can course. Can I tell you how much, that'll, how much of a loaded question that is? I know. I know what your answer is going to be. Is It depends. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm going to start with I don't believe the diagnostic statistical manual is scientifically valid to begin with. Okay, yeah. So once you start trying to, to identify categorical aspects of like a mental health diagnosis that is very much should be more dimensional um like when you we go back to that same idea like is is there like a a discrete condition like like depression that can be clearly identified and tested for and and looks similar across clinical populations no right it's there's various emotional factors that are common to the human experience the way people react to that is different. Mm-hmm. Of course, there's differences in biology and genetics. Like we've talked about this before, especially, you know, in things like your your own um, biological vulnerability to intensity of emotions. You know, that could be both a blessing and a, and a curse depending on context and circumstances. But if your question is simple, like is how much are these diagnostic or conceptualizations about what the client is going through? How accurate is that coming out of a setting like a a quick 15 minute interview with a psychiatrist Mm -hmm. or a family physician or three to five days of monitoring in a psychiatric hospital? It's, it's absolutely poor. Mm -hmm. It is so lacks specificity in all the major factors that are leading to the problem that it interferes with effective treatment in community based settings because the majority of the time, they're not going to come into a specialized center like this. They're going into the community that is just trained and then lives in that type of world. Would you agree? I would. Um, I mean, first, it has no explanatory power. Mm-hmm. You know, you get a label, it, it tells you nothing about what's happening. In fact, it usually becomes very circular. So someone comes with a diagnosis of bipolar. Well, why were they diagnosed bipolar? Well, they had this instance where they were acting this way, very dysregulated. Well, why were they acting that way that dysregulated? Well, because they're bipolar. And you, you end up with nothing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, but when you look at context and, and if you can actually understand why someone had that emotion, and, and I, I'm not saying there's not true bipolar, that that is possible. Biology can play a big part in things. But more often than not, I found in those situations, there's a context that's led to a, a, a teen who experiences emotions intensely to be in a vulnerable spot with things that happened along the way that led to them feeling strongly and acting in some kind of way, either out of the emotion or to try to feel better. Mm-hmm. And that holds much more explanatory power to figure out what to do, which takes me back to training, which is if these people are, if people are coming in and the training is to just look at the symptom from the outside and yes. even talk about it like a symptom, then you're going to put the diagnosis on it and just link up a treatment. So that was, that was leading to my question. And then it, um, as the clinical director for training here, how often do you have to like first train clinician to say, hey, clean slate, remove mm-hmm. all the things that you think you know about this person. You're coming at it with a fresh perspective. You need to identify what the real problem is. Completely. It, it's That's got to be hard, right? It's so deeply ingrained yeah. in the training all the way up to this point to, to think that way. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes I have to catch myself or I got Roger who will always catch me on that of talking about things from like just a diagnostic classification perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just not a helpful way of thinking. Well, he just called this. me out on it. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I totally the get The watchdog. It. He's yeah, here. Yeah. Rightfully so. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So, so Riz, um, let's talk a little bit about, we're going to call it treatment as usual. T-A-U, all right? So treatment as usual is what the overwhelming majority of people in the United States are going to receive when they seek out mental health care, okay? I'm really interested to gather your perspective and see how similar it is to, you know, what I've observed over the years. Um, Maybe there's some, you know, maybe we see it differently, but I'd, I'd love to just get your perspective on what you would identify as treatment as usual. And then we can get into this, like maybe how that's trained in, uh, you know, social work programs or, or counseling programs in, in particular. Yeah, I think uh, treatment as usual might lead back to talking about training as usual uh, also. But when, when I think about treatment as usual, I think of uh, what clients say when they come in and have usually been exposed to a, a supportive uh, treatment, which is like a, a talk therapy, where you usually have on the other end, um, typically, a, a clinician who's compassionate, listening, uh, cares, uh, will, will validate some of the experiences that you're having, um, sometimes validating the invalid too, but we won't touch on that, but kind of like, you know, uh, listening, understanding, being there. Um, and how, then, do, and how then, does that play out in like in a session? So like if someone just comes in, maybe they're really depressed or really fear-driven, what might a typical session look like for treatment as usual? You know, I can't say I've been in a session to say exactly what it would look like, but here's what I kind of imagine for how it's been taught and trained. You're taught counseling skills like how to reflect what the client is saying, and a reflection might be, uh, so Roger, you asked me the question what treatment as usual look like. Mm-hmm. That's me reflecting what you mm-hmm. just did. Right. Um, rubber, your glue, you just kind of bounce it right back. To <laughs> right back. <laughs> I, you know, I call this, this therapist speak, right? It's almost like, um, you know, the therapist is trained just to kind of like hold something in a room and just encourage that person to share, mm-hmm. right? And there's, n- there's nothing with greater depth and understanding um, about like maybe all the critical factors that would lead to somebody to be like being to feeling really, really bad and, you know, their lifestyle and, and the way they engage and their skills and things like that. It's almost just like, it can almost like sometimes come across as like, how was your week? Yeah, checking in. And, and I think it comes from, you know, a rationalization of what's that doing with the intention to be helpful. I think it comes from ideas like if people can be in touch with their emotions, if they can let some of their emotions out uh, in an environment like that 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 will lead to them improving and getting better. Uh, And, you know, it's a wishful thought. I can see where it kind of comes from. And for some people who are struggling with just kind of adjustment and need to experience some of the things and talk about them, that that may help. But for some of the, you know, what you're talking about with the adolescent teens going to the ER, I I don't see that being the the change factor. Yeah, and here's where I actually think it's it's harmful um, because – all valve, it might provide some supportive environment for somebody to kind of talk. We hear the same thing over and over again. Um, most of the people come into the into our center. It's not their first rodeo here in the mental health system. 
So they come into a, a center like ours. And one of the first things, you know, we're always doing is we're obviously we're asking for feedback, you know, on those initial meetings that are the early way of like beginning to set up a treatment with somebody. Mm-hmm. And I don't know about you, but I hear this routinely. Well, this is much different than I've experienced anything in the past. Well, how so? Uh, well, you're actually active and, you know, I feel like you can, you can help me and you're, you're sharing a lot. And I, I, I feel like we're, we're starting to identify some of the problems that exist. And then always my follow-up question is, well, what did you experience prior? Mm-hmm. Um, they really just kind of sat there and nodded their head, repeating back things that I was saying. <laughs> you know, they were nice, right? But yeah. I, I, you know, I'm still suffering from bulimia or, you know, my depression didn't get any better or, you know, I still couldn't get through school or, you know, I... My, my cutting frequency was the same, right? So like all the major problems, um, you know, they exist. And so this like idea that all psychotherapy is the same, right? Like it's that dodo bird effect that's really going to be the quality of the relationship is really a, you know, kind of a, a misguided way of thinking. Because first of all, when people get better, and clients get better, they rate the relationship better. So it, it makes it makes that kind of in the in those research think it was the relationship was the primary factor. But you know, ultimately, you know, what led the client to re- relate the relationship to be strong was the fact that the clinician understood them really well. It was an effective treatment. Like they it was a good use of their time. They actually really got help. Um, they also tend to rate the competency level of the therapist, you know much higher mm-hmm. like there's all these like interesting factors when you deep dive into it and i think the best therapists you know have this really strong um understanding of context and like research and historical aspects of how to overcome you know human suffering and that is brought into the therapy you know from day one and in treatment and usual it's just a place to talk you know, the one thing that I remember um, early on, we did an, a podcast about cognitive behavioral therapy. And as I had been continuing to learn, my, my idea or my perception was that once somebody goes into therapy, it could be a, a lifelong relationship between you and your therapist, you know, meeting weekly or every two weeks, continuing the conversation, checking in, seeing how you're doing, working on what you may be struggling with. And from um, an outside perspective, from a business standpoint, we always think about like, uh, lifetime customer value, right? Well, you know, you have a really good relationship with your therapist. Um, uh, you constantly have this flow of people checking in and from a billing standpoint, you know, it's a good business model. And then Roger told me, like, that's not what it's here. Like we want people to be out of here within, you know, 24 weeks or within 48 weeks, depending on what they're working on. So there's this constant turnover. And I was like, oh, well, that, that changes everything. Yeah. What's the goal? You know, the, the goal is to, yeah. to put us out of business because they don't need us. Mm-hmm. Does that treatment as usual create dependency, Dr. Mott? Or can it? <laughs> I feel like, you know, if, you, if you've been seeing the same person for, and I know people have seen the same therapist for 20 years or 30 years. Wow. And if you're seeing me for 20 or 30 years, I'm probably not doing a very good job as a therapist if you're still needing to come in and see me. Exactly. Do you become a yeah. replacement friend? It does, it does feel like it would be that way, right? Someone who, uh, 
you know, you can just go to and talk to about anything, but then at the expense of building that up in your own life, if, if you're really looking for someone to be able to vent to and have that kind of connection, I would want to more encourage people to be able to have that kind of relationships in their lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Sean brings up some really concerning points. It's the financial aspect of this, right? Um, you know, you, you put your money into your education, you know, whether it's your master's program or your doctoral program. And uh, you kind of hang that shingle outside and you develop your, your office, you know, you develop that little private practice and you're dependent upon those clients coming. So yeah, you develop a, a, a relationship with somebody and they're helping you keep the lights on and pay the bills. There's got to be some concern that there's a, a bit of a conflict of interest. Like if that particular therapist needs to keep their, their, their numbers up to, to be able to support them, somebody who's a really good client who comes and, you know, and is easy to talk to, but is doing quite well, are they really going to kind of like encourage independence and, and like move them on from therapy? Or is there an inherent conflict there where they, they might keep the good clients, right? And the good clients are the ones that generally are probably high functioning, mm-hmm. you know, easy to talk ones. to. Yeah. yeah. And so it's kind of like, it, it does begin to talk about the mess that exists in the, the mental health care in the United States. Yeah. And, and we, uh, last podcast, uh, we had, um, uh, Dr. Agnes Lenda in, we talked about dialectical behavior therapy, Marshall Linehan watched some of those videos. Um, she shared about the business model, how it is broken. Um, that from an evidence-based standpoint, those who are working with more difficult clients, more, uh, ones that require a little more time and expertise, they're not being rewarded for it. So there's this natural progression for some clinicians to to drift towards those easier cases because they're getting paid the same amount. You know, human beings are like, what did Bruce Lee said, be like water? Yeah, we have a tendency to go the easy path um, if we get tired. You know, we're, sure. we're human beings too, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you guys as clinicians, it could be hard work. It can be stressful. It can be exhausting. At some point, somebody may say, well, it's not worth it for me right now. You know, I'm going to take the easier person. You know, I, I tend to have a very rosy view of clinicians. I know the, you do. Yes, yeah. That's what I like about you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it, you think about the kind of person who chooses to enter into a mental health field. And what are they, what are they about? What are they typically about? And, you know, I think it's typically two things. You know, one someone who's really interested in people, really enjoys, is fascinated by, wants to learn more about just just people. And two, I think this is probably like the number one answer if you asked, you know, what you go into this field for, it's to help others. Mm-hmm. And bottom line, the, those end up being the main two question, answers over and over. Let me put you on the spot. What, what attracted you towards uh, psychology? Well, Sean, it was the interest in people and wanting to. (laughs) 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 But there has to be like something in your life that all of a sudden you're like, you know what? I need to, I need to make a change. You had a career previously. Am I I right? I did. Yeah. Yeah. What type of work were you doing previously? I was doing work with um, a a company that installed electronic medical records. And I would go to hospitals and work with like teacher Mm -hmm. or uh, physicians, nurses to set up their electronic medical systems. And then you gravitated towards this, went back to school, Just studied. The, the natural well, what, was, what was that job like? <laughs> um, it had a lot of perks that were great. I got to 
travel around the country to work with different clients, um, that the, the campus itself was literally like a college campus. So mm-hmm. people were starting off young in their early 20s. Uh, you were earning more money than you'd ever in your life up to that point. So being able to do things with people your age uh, in, a, in a town that was like a college town in Madison, Wisconsin, there was a lot to it that was great and felt completely unfulfilling. It <laughs> 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 was a time in my life where I felt uh, pretty down about what I was doing, uh-huh. you know, pretty kind of like depressed with the day in, day out being that way. Uh, in a way where I'm, I'm glad I listened to that feeling <laughs> to mm. see what it was telling me about what I, you know, what, what wasn't right, what, what it wasn't in line with what I actually wanted to do. So it, it really was an interest in understanding people, including mm-hmm. myself and my own interests, and wanting to, to help others. It really was those two <laughs> key things. And I was leaving a job that actually paid more than I would make after school and going into debt to 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 do it. Mm-hmm. So I think most clinicians are ha- have positive motivations and intentions for why they're doing what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Is there the pull of business and then the pressure when you put a shingle out? Uh, I absolutely believe that's there as well. But the reason why I'm really passionate about training clinicians is because I think we have this big pool of people whose hearts are in the right places about wanting to help others and then are being pulled by different messages that they're being told about what helping others actually looks like. Mm -hmm. And so I think that person working with 20 years with people may actually, under a lie detector test and saying, you know, on my mom's grave and everything, you know, would still probably believe that I'm doing what I think is in the best interest of my clients. This is, uh, you know, this is me supporting my clients and who are we to say that it should end after a certain point people struggle throughout their entire lives i should be here for them almost feel indebted to doing that i I fully believe there can be those benign Mm -hmm. motivations even positive motivations that people have yeah i mean the road to hell is paved with good intentions and i think we should always keep that in mind um i you know i i have a i have a theory i don't even think it's a theory i think it's well supported ineffective therapy, uh, behavioral treatments, psychotherapies, drive higher prescription drug use. So, um, you know, if we talk about that treatment as usual, even when the intentions are really good, ultimately you're going to, you know, you're going to hit a stuck point. You know, your clients are not going to really be getting better unless they're higher functioning. And so then it drives you out of the world of like working with people who legitimately need the help now and you end up driving that to like to psychiatry, you know, because they're you know their lack of understanding about treatments that work um, really does harm you know the patient and it harms our communities. And all all available statistics are kind of demonstrating that to be true. So um, you know, one of the questions that I that I have for you, and we, we can get into the nitty gritty of like what we're doing here, what evidence based treatments actually look like. And how we're training, but from a philosophical standpoint, right, um, and a, and a scientific viewpoint, how do we keep people off drugs, prevent chronic health, mental health issues, and hospitalizations? <laughs> the I magic question. Thought these were going to be easy questions. <laughs> For me. Um, when I think about sometimes when you see that big picture and it being so prevalent, uh, 
especially in our country, but in others as well. To me, it feels like a very overwhelming image at times. And you look for your entry points in this whole process. Like where are like the, the little nodes you can tap into that will ripple out and affect all the other nodes that are part of this. And, uh, you know, cultural messages are, are part of it. Uh, for, for me, the point of entry I see is who are those people seeing when they go to seek treatment? And what are those people learning and how are they reacting to them? Which just takes me back to training. You know, I think if I was to do this job and see clients day in, day out, at some point it would feel unfulfilling because you just have a revolving door of seeing more of the same. And the making the impact one person at a time uh, just feels limited when you then get an awareness of the bigger picture that they're coming in from. Almost like you're just like pruning these little branches, but the, the tree is still rotten. So uh, to me, it goes back to training clinicians really well because I think they have a powerful impact on what they do when that person enters into the ER for the first time. You know, does that person receive um, the kind of support where parents are coached to do more effective things and guided towards more effective treatments like a, like a DBT or like a CBT where there's an end in sight for the treatment, there's a purpose to the treatment, there's things learned that they'll use for the rest of their lives, but they're not made dependent on on it or something else because it because they're not being guided the right way. Okay, with with those with those particular treatments and the approaches from um, you know what we're learning in the field, let's get into to like what are those kind of factors? If if returning into a, you know an outpatient center and you're going to try to enter into a a form of care that prevents drug use, prevents hospitalizations and chronic illness. What needs to happen in those therapies? What makes them different compared to treatment as usual? How are you different um, in providing that care to what is typical? It's a good question. Um, So I think through the course of treatment uh, that there is a plan uh, that's put in place. And there's a process that someone goes through from the very first meetings and and intake where in the beginning you're really working to uh, understand all the factors that are leading into and maintaining the the problems that they're coming in with. So there's a reason they're feeling the way they're feeling? (laughs) Yes. I I mean, I don't want to oversimplify things, but this is the brainwashing effect. You know, when you you fragilize and medicalize, you know, when you're treating a symptom – um, you know, you're, you're saying that the, the cause is something more biologically driven and then the medicine can, can change that. Um, and, and I think when we start talking about effective treatment, we're kind of moving, we're moving further away and we're saying, hey, the way that you feel is valid given these circumstances. Yeah. Does that make sense? Does, does that fit with what you said? There's a, there's a reason or how Sean described in the past, the why, why, why? The why, why, why. But you don't know what those circumstances are. Not off hands, no. You may not know for a year, right? At what point? I mean, hopefully not. I know, I know. But it it all comes down to relationships and trust. Um, There's got to be that aha moment that could happen in session three or session 13 where they reveal something that connects all those dots. So how how do you get there? Like, how do you get there to determine that why, why, why? Time and and, and asking questions. The, the right types of questions and listening and acknowledging and, and digging deeper. I'm, I'm making assumptions. I haven't been trained. I do have all your training <laughs> videos. I need to spend time with them and I'll get smarter about it. But I'm curious um, 
Dr. Riz, what, what do you, what's the answer to that? Yeah, we're going to, we're going to put you in your, in a room, tape your eyes back and have you watch all the training videos. <laughs> <laughs> Clockwork orange style. <laughs> uh, I, I think, um, time isn't enough, right? That takes us back to that trap of, you know, someone who's 20 years in or like, you know, I'm right at the cusp here, just mm. a little bit more time and I'll have the trust necessary to understand where to go. Um, there, that there are things we can do that are pretty strategic early on to understanding things. So um, first is the attitude towards it is completely different. If you're going to treat someone like the way you're feeling makes sense and that's the attitude you convey, mm -hmm. then you guys become a team on figuring out what's leading into feeling that way. And that's a different approach than someone looking at you as if they have all the answers for why you're feeling a certain way mm. and telling you why you're feeling that way. And then relating it to kind of like theories about biology or things that don't actually fit your, your experience. So if you put someone on a lie detector and they said, how much do 100% believe that what they're being told fits their experience in a 15-minute interview? Uh, I don't think it does at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and your area of specialization is generally, you know, in that adolescent range. So adolescents, teens to young adults. And, you know, when I think about that period in life, how necessary it is to develop certain skills that, you know, are, are lifelong skills, skills as a teen or skills as a clinician working with those teens. No, we're talking about the client here and, yep, the, and client. the teen and developing, you know, specific skills, mm -hmm. right? I mean, we've talked about the vulnerability of that time period and not to mention like where we are right now in society as culture, it's, you know, it's quite unique. Um, so, there, you know, there's legitimate challenges, right? So, like, a really strong therapy, you know, probably builds a, a lot of skills, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it has to. I mean, uh, you're learning how to understand pretty intense emotions, maybe for the first time during those years. You're, you're, they're coming up in the context sometimes of complex social situations and how you're reading those social situations is having an impact on how you're feeling and what you're seeing. You're trying to figure out who you are and your identity and balance that with what you're seeing in other people and what pressures from the outside are telling you for how you should be. There, there's this whole process that I think is, that we forget sometimes when we're adults of how hard it was. I, rem I remember back when I was a teen, like analyzing myself to the point of dissecting how I walked. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, walking from the bus to the school, it's got to have a certain amount of swagger on one side to the other. Not and too fast, not, not too slow. No, you got to take your time. Shoulders back. Cool with it. <laughs> Chin <Yeah>. up. <laughs> you're thinking so hard about it, it's got to look like you're not thinking about it. Oh, at now all. you look yeah. weird. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's like tip of the iceberg of yeah. what, you know, you might be thinking about the entire day long um, with, with situations that could happen. May, may I ask a question that I think, um, this is, I'm guessing that it might be challenging as a clinician to sit down with a teen and have those conversations. I know that when I was that age, someone would put me on the spot, start asking me things. I'd be like, oh, I'm fine. I'm okay. I don't know. You know, and maybe they don't necessarily want to be there. So their willingness to, uh, to open up and actually want to get better, uh, is extremely challenging for a clinician. How do you overcome those? Yeah. Uh, for, for a subset of the teens that we see, um, I say it's the closest thing we have to mandated clients. Uh -huh. You know, we don't, we don't usually see a lot of like court mandated clients or anything like that, but often we have teens whose parents decided to bring them in 
um, sometimes with good reason, with things that are happening in their lives that they want them to have help with. And uh, the approach to it in the beginning has to be pretty sensitive to that to that fact. Mm-hmm. So when I'm meeting with the teen and I, and I maybe get some background from the parent and them together and talk about privacy, you have to emphasize privacy and how you know certain sensitive things would not be discussed outside of that conversation with the teen. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's one part of it is building trust. But then you have to directly acknowledge that you know sometimes when I meet with kids your age, it wasn't your choice to be here. You know, you weren't the one who made the phone call to make but, the appointment. But knowing when you're that young and, and you just shared something about yourself and, and how we at that age, you're very self-conscious. Very. So even though it's a, a private place and you're, you're still thinking about, I'm going to think what Dr. Riz thinks about me by saying these things. So mm-hmm. I'm still going to hold back. So you... There's got to be a huge element of being radically genuine yeah. <laughs> as an analyst and therapist, right? Because you, yeah. you have to address those things right off the bat. Mm-hmm. You have to bring up what people might be thinking that they might not be saying. So if a teen has a concern, for example, that what, you tell, what they tell you will be judged by you in some kind of way, or you're going to do what they're conditioned to believe adults do in their life, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is usually lecture, tell them what they should be doing, or sometimes they come from invalidating environments and they're just told that they're wrong, the way they're thinking is wrong or feeling is wrong. So those things, I have to be completely transparent as a clinician about how I'm thinking about therapy, how I'm seeing them, giving them elements of choice in treatment. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's bringing a different level of respect and relating them differently to, I think, most the way most adults do in their life. Okay, okay I'm going to be Twitter. Okay. I am the... Are you Roger on Twitter or just Twitter? No, I, I am the um, I am the prototypical psychiatrist on Twitter, okay, who will say, well, you're not working with the serious mentally ill, right? You obviously are, are, are working with a population that has a level of functioning and therefore, your your viewpoints on what is effective care are a bit distorted because you're not working with the most ill. Comment. Mm. Dang Twitter trolls. <laughs> <laughs> these are no. I mean, these are these are not just Twitter trolls. These are beliefs, right? So, so for those I keeping hate. score, Roger has voices for me. He has voices for people on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> he's got <laughs> he's got a whole uh, a whole kitty of voices. Those also, are the voices <laughs> in my head when I have time to these people. <laughs> He also has a nerd voice for statistics. I oh, that's right. He does. Yes, that yes, one. I do. <laughs> <laughs> that's also directed at me. <laughs> Let's uh, analyze your data. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's actually a, a really good question because I, I do see people throwing that out to almost dismiss um, what you're capable of achieving. Yeah. I think we have to look at some of the, the teens and presenting issues that may enter into treatment. Uh, with, say, like a dialectal behavior therapy for adolescents. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about, uh, you know, teens and families where they've been through for years things like seven hospitalizations, mm. uh, not even exaggerating, Yeah, uh, multiple different pharmaceuticals over that time, uh, self-harm that may have continued for, for years, uh, even a history of suicide attempts, overdosing on pills. Uh, these are not easy cases necessarily where you're doing this. And usually those teens are most likely to have had uh, the level of respect for them and their choices and their thoughts and why they might be feeling what they're feeling and why it makes sense 
most likely to have that taken away in the name of fear, safety, and protecting them. Uh, but to, that's the most uh, valuable client for me to be that way with that team. Because it's so rewarding when you see progress. Not only really rewarding, but they haven't had that way of thinking about mm-hmm. their experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, you know, this, this gentleman posted something on, on Twitter that I you know, responded to. Um, uh, this guy... Dr. Mark Ruffalo uh, appears to be... Are you calling somebody out? I am calling him out. <laughs> um, <laughs> Future guest. <laughs> because he's on he's on faculty at University of Central Florida. Um, and he tends to like really adopt to this traditional like medical model way of like thinking about mental health problems. He'll use words like disease and illness. And, you know, he's a therapist, interestingly enough. Um, in psychoanalysis. I won't have to go there today. But his statement was, a real tragedy of psychotherapy training in the 21st century is that few therapists are exposed to serious psychiatric disease and thus come to assume that the work with generally healthy neurotic, there's that word, neurotic, you can tell he's psychoanalytic, mm-hmm. neurotic patients provides adequate basis to speak on mental illness as a whole. And, you know, that is into the mindset of, of how some people think. And, you know, kind of just, I felt like the need to respond. I said, you know, this is a really bad take. The U.S. has a community-based model of care. Psychiatric hospitals are short-term and there are few long-term facilities. You know, if anything, uh, current therapists lack uh, the training to work effectively with, with chronic conditions. Uh, your use of the word disease is telling. Like, so th- first, the idea that therapist training or therapists are only working with, you know, they're neurotic, you know, which is the worried. Well, let's face it, right? People are worried. It's just not accurate because where all these pe- everyone who has this quote unquote serious disease, where are they going? Right. You know, they're going into the communities to work with these therapists. Um, but I think it's always this underlying condition, this um, this underlying belief that they can only be managed with modern day pharmaceuticals. Um, and Hey, we're 30 plus years into this experiment, right? It's over, right? We, we have all the outcome data. It's extremely poor, right? It's really, really bad. Um, and even, you know, that SMI or serious mental health people put in this realm of schizophrenia or bipolar, again, outcomes really, really poor. Now, when we're talking about 51% increase in, in adolescent females going into the psychiatric hospital, they're not diseased. They're not ill. Like, sometimes the environment is what is disordered. You know, it is the environment, the world in which they live in. It could be an abusive home environment. Um, they could be struggling with things that are, you know, in the past, previous generations had not had to deal with, like the, the rising uh, uh, use of obviously like social media and how to change self-perception. Like yeah. there's so many complex mm-hmm. factors to throw that disease on it is almost like it's dangerously naive. Hey, 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 that's that label is assigned to one person and one person only <laughs> in this room. Don't you go throwing <laughs> it around this big blanket statement for everybody. <laughs> well, I'll add to that, that it, it does ignore all context in which it's happening. Like you're saying the world that it's in. And when I look at, for example, the, the adolescent girls who I'm seeing, I would realistically estimate that 
90% of the adolescent girls I see have some concerns related to body image. Just, they just do. Yeah. To, to varying levels of intensity. Maybe there's a developmental normality to that. <laughs> right. For maybe, one. Maybe it's not a disease and beyond developmental normality, maybe it's something about how our, our society looks at and, and treats the, the bodies of adolescent females, how yeah. it's described on social media. And so we're going to, it's, it's almost offensive to call that a disease as if that is within those girls. It's something within you that's, uh, that's clearly wrong here uh, that needs to be medicated or. Yeah. Uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll treat uh, anorexia here. It is absolutely offensive to me that they're shoving SSRIs to a nutritionally deprived, underweight teenage girl. You know, like, and the message that sends, they, uh, you know, obviously the food in this situation is the medicine, you know, and, uh, you know, most of the symptoms they're experienced while nutritionally deprived and underweight begin to really dissipate once they restore health. Um, so, you know, just think about where we are in a society where a prescription is um, for an SSRI, quote unquote, antidepressant is provided for anorexia without any clinical trials on that. You know, to me, where, uh, you know, how do we get to a point where someone can be dehumanized? Because that's how I view it. Someone can be dehumanized that you can experiment on a uh, adolescent brain in the manner in which we are experimenting on adolescent brains in, in U.S. society. What does that say about human nature? What does that say about our culture? I, I think there's a lot it actually does say about human nature for sure. Now, like looking back through time, when there have been human experiences that we don't understand or that someone doesn't understand, I think it's natural human tendency to try to label it or fear it. Um, but if you label it, you get you almost like you answer something mm -hmm. <laughs> or you think you answer something. So you give yourself an illusion of certainty about it. Mm -hmm. So we can go back to things like uh, I'm not like a historian. I'm not a know-it-all, but things like the Salem witch trials. You know, there was some something that people saw that they interpreted a certain way, so they labeled it. Oh, you label it a witch. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you, you someone has um, hallucinations or things like that. Well, they might be like a fortune teller or it, you find explanations so that you feel like you understand the world a little bit better. It's a sense of control. A sense yeah. of control, yeah. yeah. So, you know, if I'm going to think about human nature when it comes to this, I don't think it's well understood by enough people why uh, why a teen may be going through that level of distress and it might be coming out in ways. And and to be fair, I think when there's a high level of emotional distress, none of us express it accurately. <laughs> you know, if I'm upset and pissed about something, yeah, and, and I'm like, you know, slamming cupboards, that doesn't really explain what I'm upset about. Someone's just going to be like, why are you treating the cupboards that way? <laughs> so uh, th the same with, I think, emotional distress in general for our teens, the way it comes out may look a certain way that is then going to be seen as bipolar, a.k.a. crazy, a.k.a. I don't understand it, so it must have this label or something on it. Mm -hmm. And I would imagine the, the most challenging thing is that as society continues to shift and evolve and new things come into play, that those variables that influence those things will continue to you know, influence uh, emotion in, in teens and how they respond to stuff. And those are the things that you can't see yet. Those are the unknown unknowns that are going to pop up 10 years in the future so, like, to say you understand something um, is just not, not possible the way that society and the influence culture has will continue to evolve. You got to trust the science, Sean. 
That concludes part one of our discussion with Dr. Rizwan Ahmad. Next week, we will release part two, where we continue our conversation with Dr. Ahmad on the need for more clinical training. Thank you for listening. Listening to a podcast may be therapeutic, but it is not therapy. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional. If you are in a crisis or you think you have an emergency, call your doctor or 911. If you are considering suicide, call 1-800-273-TALK to speak with a skilled, trained counselor. If you found this podcast interesting, please share it with a friend, subscribe through your podcast app, and engage with us through our social channels. And if you are concerned about a friend or family member, reach out. The six magic words, I was just thinking about you, may make their day. Thank you for listening.